Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, for those of you who don't know, I work a job that requires me to spend a whole lot of time in front of my computer reading. Makes sense? And so because of that, for the past... I guess really for the past several months, I've been kind of on uh, a classical music kick, right? Because when you're... When, when, when you're sitting at your desk looking at the screen and having to do this much reading and then you have to do some typing, then, you know, basically anything that relates to your job, at least for me, it works best to listen to music as opposed to really any kind of spoken word type stuff, you know, whether it's books on tape or a podcast, talk radio, whatever, right? Music is definitely the best choice. And as I say, for the past several months, what it's been is classical music, but I've kind of gotten burnt out on that, and so I think last week it was predominantly Pearl Jam, and then so far this week it's really been all REM all the time, and I guess one of the things that's kind of gotten lost over the years is just how much of a music junkie I used to be. You know, I mean, I look back at my mid-teens up through my early 20s, and I was a music fiend. You know, I devoured the stuff. And there came a point when that just sort of went away for whatever reason. And I guess what I've I guess what I'm saying is for the past week or so I've just been rediscovering that stuff. And specifically what I've been listening to is uh, R.E.M. in general, but in particular, their New Adventures and Hi-Fi album, which I guess as far as the masses are concerned, and I, 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 you can't even really say the literati because we're talking about music, but I guess the hipster rock music critic elite, R.E.M. is just not going to be remembered for... New Adventures and Hi-Fi. This was not one of the big sellers. But at the same time, I listened to it, and this was... I, I don't want to say that it was formative to me for what REM is supposed to be and what they're all about and everything, because really by then, in my musical acumen, they'd been very well established. But I guess what I took from New Adventures and Hi-Fi when it came out was that, you know, holy shit, this band that's been around for all of these years still has just cool fucking albums to make, you know? And I guess at the time, that was about as much as I'd thought about it. But re-listening to it now, I don't know. It it has this sort of country music thing with this rock music thing going. And I don't know, it's just, it's really addictive to listen to. And... It's, it's varied. There are all different kinds of moods to it and tones and musical textures. It's not just one thing just beating away at you. And I really appreciate that, you know? So, anyway, that's, that's what I've been listening to quite a bit over the past couple of days. R.E.M.'s New Adventures and Hi-Fi album. And um, I think specifically, though, the song that really... It really stuck out for me. Well, really, there were two. The first, uh, the first one is uh, "Ebo the Letter," which freaking I'm in love with. That's just a great, great song. And the other one is the other song on uh, on that's kind of on the album is a different song. It's a uh, "So Fast, So Numb." And the way, the reason I say it's kind of on the album is because, yes, there is a song on there that is called So Fast, So Numb. But actually what I've been listening to over the past couple of days is a live version of that song from, I think, um, Ireland. Uh, It's basically from one of their live albums. And nothing wrong with the studio version, you understand. I like the recorded version. It's a good song. But there are songs out there that they take on a whole new dimension whenever they get played live that maybe was missing from the studio material. And I think, well, honestly, I I think Led Zeppelin is very famous for that. 
And uh, but certainly it's true of uh, this REM song, "So Fast, So Numb." I don't know what it is. I just can't freaking get enough of this song. I love it, and so there's really no point to all of this. I just felt like talking a little bit about REM, and so now I have, and we can get on with the show. makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love talking about comics. I mean, yeah, I talk about movies and TV shows sometimes, but man, comics are my first love. So, you think I've got another comic book to talk about today? Yep, that'd be a safe bet, but I won't be alone. Not this time. Nope. This time, I've got a co-host. And before I introduce him, though, I should point out that Daredevil is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. And the reasons for that ought to be fairly obvious. I'm a ginger. My vision really sucks. I've spent the majority of my professional life working either for or with lawyers. And I'm Catholic. So just how the fuck am I not going to relate to Daredevil? And that's where today's host comes in, today's guest host. He's the host and proprietor of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And for those of you who don't know, you can find that show at daredevilpodcast.com. Yes, I speak of the man, the myth, the legend, the Conway Twitty of podcasting, Mr. J. David Weeder. Welcome back, sir. Glad to be here. I think it's ironic that I've earned that moniker of Conway Twitty podcasting. Not only do I like Conway Twitty, he died in my city. <laughs> oh, he did? Yeah, he passed away in 93, and he died at a hospital that's about two miles away from here. I had no idea. See, that's the thing. I mean, I there's something about living... I don't know if Texas even counts as part of the South, but living in Texas, you... I've at least heard of Conway Twitty. I don't think I've ever actually heard Conway Twitty, though, so interesting apropos of nothing really but it was also it was also my first concert my my grandma wanted to go see Conway Twitty in of course Branson the Mm -hmm. mecca of the redneck 
and <laughs> and it ended up being a fantastic show. So, all right, all right. Well, uh, today's episode is kind of kind of special in as much as it's the first intercompany crossover that I've ever talked about on the show, and there's a reason for that too. But I'm gonna get into it later. For right now, though, you guys need to understand that Dave and I are gonna be discussing Spider-Man, Batman, Disordered Minds. Before we get into that, though, I should mention that Hey Kids Comics did a show about this very same book just a couple weeks ago, and I truly had no idea what they were planning. But if you want to hear the Leylands talk about this comic book, too, and get their perspective uh, about it, check out Hey Kids Comics, Volume 4, Number 13, and I ask only that you keep in mind that this is completely unplanned. I had no idea that they were going to do this. But anyway. Yeah, it kind of shocked me, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and like the timing of the release, too. I mean, golly, even if even if it had been another month, I would have felt better about it. But, you know, it's just it's it really is unavoidable now. And so. Well, I have avoided that episode, so I don't know what they think about it yet. But I, I I'm a pretty regular listener to Hey Kids Comics, so I probably will once we are done with our discussion. <laughs> well, uh, and actually, I'm thinking I'm probably going to be doing the same thing. But uh, anyway, so part of the reason for doing Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is to talk about comics that I've always loved. And I've done a lot of that. But I also want to read and talk about comics that I've never read before. And that's what Disordered Minds is. I never read it before, before I guess, this whole uh, interval where Dave and I agreed that he and I were going to talk about this as part of my show. Never read it before. So this was totally new to me, and I don't know why, but it just felt like I should make a special point of emphasizing that, but anyway. So, now Dave, are you ready for me to get into the summary of this bad boy? Yeah, I'm ready whenever you are. Okie dokie. This is Spider-Man, Batman, Disordered Minds, publisher is Marvel Comics, writer is J.M. DeMatteis, penciler is Mark Bagley, Inkers are Scott Hanna and Mark Farmer. Letterers are Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And colorist is Electric Crayon. The story begins with each superhero awakening after a nightmare about the death of their loved ones. In the case of Spider-Man, he dreamed of Ben Parker's murder, except the killer's face looked kinda sorta maybe like the Joker. Meanwhile, Batman relives the death of his parents at the hands of somebody who looks an awful lot like Carnage. Later, at the Ravencroft uh, Institute, Spider-Man and Dr. Ashley Kafka oversee Carnage locked up in a specially designed cell while Dr. Kafka attempts to cure his mental illness. Despite being heavily contained inside his prison, Carnage breaks free and dukes it out with Spider-Man, but he then gets stunned by the Institute's heavily armed guards with their microwave guns. Dr. Kafka's confused as to how Carnage was able to resist the high-intensity heat wave from his prison that supposedly neutralizes the symbiote before she realizes that the only way to truly neutralize the symbiote is to somehow neutralize Cassidy's mind. Spider-Man and Kafka are then interrupted by Cassandra Bla uh, Breyer, a behavioral psychologist appointed by a congressional committee to deal with people just like Cassidy. Breyer says that she's got a solution to Cassidy's hostile mentality. Basically, she's developed a high-end computer chip which can be implanted into Cassidy and then used to control and thus pacify him. The problem here is that Kafka and Spider-Man totally oppose Breyer's methods. Which makes absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever because you'd think they'd be happy not to have to worry about a maniac like Carnage breaking free and killing people, but hey, the conflict in this story's got to come from somewhere, right? So anyway, Kafka and Spider-Man get totally ignored by Briar as she's wearing her I don't give a fuck t-shirt, and she explains that her method is intended to bring Cassidy's violent antics as carnage to an end. Oh, and by the way, that's a claim that Kafka and Spider-Man can't make. So Briar tells both of them to enjoy a nice warm glass or shut the fuck up and let the adults do their work. Meanwhile, as all that stuff's going on, Cassidy's undergoing the implant surgery. Later on in Gotham City, Batman stops the Joker from unleashing bats infected with the Joker venom into the city. 
Later, at Arkham Asylum, Briar and Kafka pay a visit to Dr. Arkham's office. Briar consults with Arkham on using her biotechnic chip to solve the Joker's insanity. Arkham's a little unsure at first about Briar's methods, but he changes his mind, PDQ, when she unveils a surprisingly passive and timid Cletus Cassidy in handcuffs. Briar explains to Arkham that the chip not only calmed Cassidy's aggression down, but it also forces the symbiote into dormancy. The reason for that is because lacking Cassidy's violent, uh, violent emotions, the symbiote can't really feed off his emotions, and because of that, the symbiote's utterly tamed. Later, the Joker gets implanted with the chip and then gets put on display alongside Cassidy in a press conference right in front of Arkham Asylum. This being a comic book, you know it can't last very long. Speaking of which, Briar's later getting driven around Gotham City with the Joker and Cassidy along for the ride. The driver says he's uneasy about having two of the world's most famous murderers riding along with him, completely unguarded. Briar assures him that the men are totally safe now and adds, the Joker and Carnage are dead. The words are no sooner out of Briar's mouth than the driver finds himself impaled by Carnage's blades. Turns out he's been faking it the entire time and basically has just been waiting for the right time to explode. As the car they're driving around in crashes, Carnage holds both the Joker and Briar hostage as the, gar- as the guards, which the government uh, has assigned to be escorts, bring everything to a standstill. A guard then reveals himself to be Batman. Batman challenges Carnage to face him, but that's kind of a waste of time as Carnage points out he's not one of Batman's rogues gallery, and because of that, he really doesn't give a flying fuck about Batman. He just wants to kill people. While Carnage is there yammering away, Spider-Man arrives on the scene and saves Briar. Spider-Man and Batman try to take Carnage down, but... Carnage escapes with the Joker in tow by doing the usual supervillain move of distracting the heroes by endangering innocent bystanders. Later, Batman talks to Spider-Man and tells him basically go home because he, Batman, doesn't need any help capturing Carnage. Spider-Man protests that all he wants to do is help, but Batman makes it pretty clear that Spider-Man's help just isn't wanted. Meanwhile, at an abandoned warehouse in Gotham City's abandoned warehouse district, Carnage manages to destroy the biochip inside the Joker, which brings the clown, the clown prince of crime back to his usual lovable personality. Carnage and, jo- and the Joker then decide to team up. Meanwhile, at the Batcave, Batman researches Cletus Cassidy and suddenly decides to leave in order to pick up something. If you thought Batman was off to pick up some Guatemalan hookers, you'd be wrong. Batman's decided he needs Spider-Man's help after all, so he tracks old Webheb down and they decide to team up too. In the Joker's hideout in an abandoned movie theater, in the abandoned movie theater district of Gotham City, Carnage listens to the Joker explain his plan of implanting his Joker virus into hundreds of Joker in the boxes and then start giving them all away to needy tots as a really fucked up Christmas present. The problem here is that Carnage calls the Joker's scheme stupid. He suggests that mass murdering shitloads of random people in the most horrific way possible is definitely the best way to go. This pretty much disgusts the Joker, who justifies his own approach as being all about style and theater, and decides that teaming up with Carnage was the wrong move. That pisses Carnage off something fierce, but the Joker's wearing his I-don't-give-a-fuck t-shirt as he makes his escape through a trap door and then blows up the abandoned movie theater with Carnage still inside while at a safe distance. Elsewhere, Batman decides to apologize to Spider-Man and then they kiss and make up. From there, the two of them manage to track Carnage's location through a remnant of his chip and arrive in the abandoned movie theater district to find that the abandoned movie theater that the Joker had been hiding in has all been blown to smithereens. The two of them discover Carnage's body, but it's a trap! Batman and Carnage fight it out for a little while, but just then the Joker interrupts everything and tells Carnage to back off. You see, killing Batman's the Joker's right. The Joker then reveals that his Joker in the box 
is right there in hand containing the deadly virus and announces his plans to unleash it immediately and poison everybody there just to fuck Carnage's day up real bad. From there, Batman beats the shit out of Carnage while Spider-Man takes the Joker down. With the defeat of both Carnage and the Joker, Batman and Spider-Man thank each other and silently trade a handshake. After that, Spider-Man swings off back to New York while Batman watches over Gotham City. The end. So, what did I think? Well, you're going to have to wait on that. Nope, I think the guest of honor should go first. So, Dave, how'd you like this story? Well, I'll be honest, uh, full disclosure, I didn't read it till we sat down to, to cover it, so I'm glad to hear that you did the same. And going into it, I'm like, what is Magnus getting me into? Because Spider-Man and Batman's not the first pairing that would spring to mind. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're in a field where there were lots of lackluster Marvel DC crossovers. Oh, yeah. Including Batman and Daredevil. Both of those had their moments, but you also had a great one in Batman and Captain America. And that remains my standard. This one doesn't quite reach that, but it definitely stands out in comparison. I was really pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I agree with that. And that actually kind of ties into something that's actually a little further ahead in my, in my notes. I'm really not – and this may be heresy uh, for some people, and if it is, I apologize. But I'm usually not all that big on these intercompany crossovers because in the majority of cases – not always – but in the majority of cases, when it comes to intercompany crossovers, I guess I'm trying to think of the best. I like the idea of these characters occupying separate universes. And I guess what I mean by that is the Marvel Universe is a completely separate plane of reality or maybe a completely different dimension from the DC Universe. But that's not really how this, how this story goes. I mean – Instead, it's like the two universes exist side by side, mm-hmm. but somehow the characters just never meet each other very often. And I don't know. That's just never worked for me. See, I, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because otherwise you have to explain how Spider-Man ended up in Gotham. Right. And you've got another, what, five, six pages. It's it, Again, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. I, th- I find this way easier because you can just move along and get to the good stuff. And, you know, I never, as obvious as it is now, looking at the first page, I never tied that violent nature of these two characters' origins together. Never saw that similarity. But at the same time, as similar as that origin point is, these are two characters that went two different directions as far as their attitude. Because Batman mourns his parents. Spider-Man, as it says in the book, never surrendered to despair. And throughout this book, I mean, most of the, the plot is just... It's, it's mechanical. It does what it needs to do to move the characters along. Mm-hmm. But the character work on, from DeMatteis is fantastic because his contrast, his compare and contrast remains consistent. You see a clear line in their similarities and their differences, and that's what I really enjoyed about it. Plus, you had Mark Bagley. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes, you did. Um, but as to characterization, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, and again, that actually ties back in with my notes. That's another thing that I usually don't enjoy about a lot of these intercompany crossovers that for some reason it's it's as if the very worst aspects of the Marvel and DC universes are just right there on display. Mm-hmm. And most of the time the characters just don't gel very well together. And I think that's because they really weren't meant to go together. But Disordered Minds kind of bucks the odds in as much as Spider-Man and Batman go great together. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of like a comedian straight man kind of thing in that Spider-Man can crack jokes and stuff while Batman frowns. But as you say, they do have, when you think about it, very similar origins. And they went in such completely different directions with it. And I've always kind of chalked that up to Batman, basically young Bruce Wayne... When you come right down to it, he was victimized as a child. Now, obviously not to the same degree that his parents were, because they're the ones that died. But he was he was a victim in all of that. Whereas, ultimately, if Spider-Man was a victim, it was a, he, he was a victim of his own ego and his own vanity. This was – what happened with Uncle Ben, it was meant to be an object lesson to him. This is what happens or what can happen whenever you – Basically, you don't do what you're supposed to do with your with, with your powers. There is literally nothing like that 
in in Bruce's background. There's, I mean, that's not the the formative lesson he would have taken because there's nothing he could have done to stop what what happened from happening. And I'm not saying this that it somehow detracts from Spider-Man's heroism. If anything, I think it kind of enhances it. But at the same time, you know, it, it I, I do see the similarity there. But you know, there are those stylistic differences that you know they come from kind of similar circumstances and what and, and the choices that they've made in later life. It does make for good contrast between one another, and it, but at the same time, it, they're not so far away from one another that you you just can't enjoy the story. I mean, Spider-Man can still be a little bit of a clown, Batman can still be a little bit of a grim, morose fuck, and it's still and it's still an entertaining story. The characters really do play well off each other, and you know, when, I remember when this this was being hyped by Wizard Magazine and everything. Like, this is going to be the best thing that mankind has ever created since the inflatable woman, you know, and this is just going to be great. And, and I just, I, I got to tell you, dude, I just did not see what the hype was going to be. What was going to be so cool about pairing Spider-Man up with Batman. I mean, who gives a shit reading this now? I give a shit. I, this was a great story. And like you say, the plot is a little bit mechanical, it's the characterization of everybody that ultimately works for me. So anyway, I didn't mean to blather so much, but no, I mean, and, and piggybacking on that, you you have Spider-Man not being phased by Batman because he's seen worse. And then when you think about it, you've got these two characters who arguably have two out of the three greatest comics rogues galleries. The third being the Flash, right? And the selection of villains was spot on. Carnage and Joker, I mean, again, wouldn't immediately come to mind, but as soon as you say it, oh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, the banter and the dialogue was fantastic. You get you got to have great banter with Alfred, or you're, just that relationship has to be present at some point. And you get this great bit with about finger sandwiches and Alfred <laughs> suggesting he get a, a happy meal, and then that continues with Spider Man and Batman when <laughs> Spider Man does a faux pas and mentions, "Well, Superman hasn't called me yet. I keep waiting." And there's this pause. Yeah, and he just gives him this look. Yeah, <laughs> like if I could kill you right now, I would so do it. <laughs> but but you also see the characters influence on each other. Batman lightens up a little bit, makes a joke, says please at one point. And then yeah. Spider-Man has a little bit of a... You start seeing some of those darker elements that would be inherent in a character like that, that's lived a life like that. And the characters are actually... They're benefiting from each other. They are balancing each other. It was... it was, it, Admittedly, overall, this story was... I don't want to say forgettable, but once I was done reading it, I moved on. But while I was reading it, I loved the hell out of it. And I really wanted to be more critical... But I have mm -hmm. nothing really to bitch about here. The, the plot's a little hackneyed, but mm -hmm. it works towards a greater end. Well, and, and I agree. And one of the things that I don't think I would have the same perspective on this story, and the, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to mention this just kind of up front. I don't think I would have the same perspective on this story if I'd read it when it first came out that I do now is just recent goings on with the Joker. I mean – if you ask me, J.M. DeMatteis is one of the very few writers out there who truly get the Joker. Mm -hmm. And to draw a comparison, I think probably the most famous story recently of the Joker going on you know, one of his rampages is probably Death of the Family by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Now, I got to tell you, this is probably not the right time to get too far into that, you know, not that, that whole Death of the Family thing. But what I'll say is that basically nothing about that story rang true for me in terms of how I've always seen the Joker. The Joker doesn't just randomly slaughter huge masses of people. I mean, that's not his style. And DeMatteis understood that. The, for me, the best example – I'm not saying it's the perfect example, but the best example I can think of the perfect Joker murder – is actually from Going Sane, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago, that was also written by J.M. DeMatteis. And you basically had the Joker with throwing this sort of phony parade with real acrobats and real mu uh, musicians dancing around. And they were working, through, working their way through uh, one of Gotham City's few truly safe neighborhoods. And then the Joker set off a bomb and blew everything, including the parade and you know the acrobats and everything, blew everybody to kingdom come why because to him there's something that's really hilarious about people watching a, 
a, a parade, something just so innocent, like, a, like most of us think of a parade, and then some lunatic sets off a bomb and kills everybody. It's not just about murder for the Joker. There's got to be some kind of joke to it. And that's exactly the character that we see in this story. It's not enough that, that you, you whack a bunch of people. You need to do it in a way that the murder is a punchline to something. And that is going to be always the main source of conflict, I think, between the Joker and Carnage. They may be initially interested in one another. Ultimately, Joker's uh, interest in, I guess, sort of the humor of it, the theatricality, that would be a turnoff for Carnage, who just basically wants to disembowel somebody. That's it. And it... I thought it was very telling that DeMatteis picked up on that. So anyway, I don't know like, what your thoughts were, but anyway. No, I, and I, yeah, again, it's, it's just the characters, the, the compare and contrast, and it, it works on all four of these characters. And I'm not saying nothing else in the story matters, but the focus was very much let's play with these characters. And if you're going to have a crossover, that's kind of where you want to put your money, you know? That's where you want to put your stock. Mm-hmm. Because people are coming to it for the characters. They're not coming to it for J.M. DeMatteis or even Mark Bagley, even though I know you like Mark Bagley. I love him, too. It wouldn't necessarily make or break a story for me. So J.M. DeMatteis actually put, you know, put the right emphasis where it needed to be. And the fact that Bagley was here just made it all that much better. Because like you, I, I feel that Bagley is the, one of the definitive Spider-Man artists. Mm-hmm. He was the ideal Spider-Man artist. But to me, he was always – he wasn't a showboat. He was an everyman artist. He's going to bring you something great consistently on time every time. But he's not going to overload the book. He's not a McFarlane where he wants to showboat or even a Larson. He's here to tell a story. And even in his current work on Hulk, the art looks gorgeous, but it doesn't overpower the story. And in here, he was just – he was the ideal choice because he, he not only nails Spider-Man, which he could probably do in his sleep by now. He mm-hmm. nails Batman. Batman looks gorgeous. Right, and it actually leads into um, you know something I actually I wanted to ask you about, and I, I maybe you and I are going to disagree on this. I guess um, I like the way Batman looks in this uh, in this story and everything, but it, at the same time, it it looks to me like Bagley basically he got this assignment and he pretty much did the assignment. I don't know how much practice he really did, you know, perfecting his take on on Batman in this story. It just something here just looks sort of off to me. I can't put my finger on it, but it just like I like the look of, you know, uh the cowl and the cape and everything. Mm-hmm. But I mean the model itself, there's just something here that just seems off. And I kind of had the same attitude. I mean, I'm not real big on Jim Lee to begin with, but I kind of had the same attitude about Jim Lee when he drew Superman and that Batman Hush uh, mm. storyline that he didn't really have a model perfected for Superman. He just kind of drew Superman and then just ran with it. Whereas whenever he finally did turn his attention to whether or not anyone likes For Tomorrow, I think there's even if it's just subtle differences and – uh, the art or the model or whatever it was that Jim Lee was using, it just looks somehow better. And I, and and maybe this is just a really nitpicky thing to say, but it just kind of feels like if you know Bagley could have just spent a week hammering his way through uh, a Batman, then I, I can't help but think this might not have turned out a little bit better. Now that having been said. I don't know if I should credit J.M. DeMatteis for this or Bagley or what, but the very first time that we see the Joker in this story, there's an argument that maybe that those same criticisms apply. You know, the model isn't maybe quite perfect. But one of the things that he does that I just love when artists do is they take him out of that fucking purple suit and they kind of give him this this circus outfit (laughs) – and because if you think about it, I mean, a guy as vain as the Joker, he's not going to wear the same shit every single day. He's going to mix it up, and he maybe he'll wear a police outfit one day. Maybe the next day he'll wear a clown outfit. And whenever you you mix it up, you're. You, I think for the Joker, you're actually enhancing the character because he is that dynamic, and he would he would 
come up with you know different outfits and costumes and all these sorts of things. And to him, that's it's part of the whole theatricality of it. I think I think he would totally get in on that. And it rang true for me that we saw so much of this in um, in this story. So yeah, he would do a go big or go home attitude. So I can I can totally see the changes. But I think as far as the Batman model, the thing that did throw me off. That does it, it doesn't affect Spider-Man because that remains fairly true to the, the color scheme of the costume. Batman is presented in fairly fairly all black. Mm-hmm. I think the colors really mess with some of the, the proportions and some of the details that Bagley put in. So if I had one big criticism, it would be the coloring is, is – it obstructs what could be good art. Because if he'd stuck with the traditional gray on black, mm-hmm. I don't think we would – I don't think we would be having the same discussion. Yeah, maybe so. Um, one of the things, though, that uh, really stood out, to, and this may seem like a like a sort of Captain Obvious, sort of no duh thing to to talk about now, guys. You need to understand something. This came out like I want to say it was uh, like early on in 1997, which means the book itself would have probably needed to be it would needed to have been scripted at least I don't know latest probably sometime the middle of 1996. Now. Those may seem like meaningless dates and figures and years and all that stuff, but you need to understand this book – and this is my point. This book came out pretty much near the sort of downward slope of the clone saga. Peter Parker technically was not Spider-Man when this book came out, and I do think it actually kind of says something that Marvel – they were at least – aware enough to know that you could not do this story with Ben Riley, you know, irrespective of what their, their plan, it seemed like it was changing by the day, but whatever plan they were running with at the time, the only character they could ever hope to use in this story had to be Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, again, it's one of those, it's a perspective I don't think I would have had, or at least not fully appreciated if I'd read this book when it first came out. But, you know, like the, that historical aspect of it, it's easy to overlook that whenever you re- – and until somebody, I think, points out to you, guys, by all rights, this really should have been Ben Riley's book, not Peter's. And um, anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, that, I can't – I'm trying to wrap my mind around it, but I can't see a way to make Ben Riley work. And, and it's not because the character is flawed, but yeah, he shares the history, but he also shares a gap in history that Peter doesn't. I agree. And that gap in history is pretty damn relevant. And I think it it, it kind of just uh, speaks to – like I, I, I guess my point is that a lot of people tend to look down their nose at Marvel starting in the mid to late 90s. And people – I count myself among them, all right? Mm. But they were at least on top of their game enough to know that this has got to be – basically, they, they, they can't phone this one in. They've really got to – uh, swing for the stars and on that subject i do think to kind of tie it back to bagley's art he he knew what his assignment was to do now i can sit here and nitpick you know his model for batman and all that and whatever but the fact is if you look at the backgrounds it basically if you look at gotham city he's not drawing new york city bagley is drawing gotham city in every single one of these panels it just does not look like a place where you would organically expect to find Spider-Man. It looks like the perfect home for for Batman. Every single one of these uh, pages, anything that shows uh, Gotham City, and I think the best – of course, these pages aren't numbered, but there's a page where Batman swings through the air towards the beginning of the story and Ninja kicks the Joker right in the face. The background on that page and all the other ones that follow, like the page or two that follow, and 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 especially Arkham Asylum. I mean, holy shit, that looks awesome, you know. And you have this impossibly full moon and everything. It's just very dark, very atmospheric art. And the thing is, this isn't something that I normally tend to associate with Mark Bagley, who I think there's a degree to which I almost want to call him the Marvel Universe's Tom Grummet. Hmm. And this is – it would be like – imagine for you DC guys out there, imagine drawing or seeing Tom Grummet draw you know, Gotham City par excellence you know, and how foreign that, that is to his style. Same thing goes with Bagley, I, and it, it doesn't look forced or anything. It looks freaking badass, and so um, 
you know, I'm a I'm a Mark Bagley fanboy from way back. Obviously, I don't have to talk you into anything, but no. this is just I think he I don't know as I'd go so far as to call this some of his career best work, but he definitely didn't sleep through this. That's for sure. Yeah, he took it seriously. He 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 came to the he stepped up to the plate is what he did. And I love that Gotham and New York do have distinctive identities because you have a full page splash of Spider-Man swinging and it's pretty much what you would expect of a Spider-Man swinging through New York. And then Gotham looks like Gotham. I mean, there's no real other way to put it. Yeah. And it just looked, yeah. I mean, and anyway, so I could, I could beat this drum all, you know, all day long, but this is, this is just a phenomenal art. And like I said, I mean, it's, it's easy to nitpick this stuff, but you know, to kind of go back to the writing though, for just a moment, one of the things that's never, it's never really made sense to me. It's never really worked for me is this whole idea of, you know, supervillains being all buddy-buddy with each other. And we kind of touched on this a minute ago, but I wanted to just kind of make a point of being explicit about this. All too often in comics, what you see are supervillains team up, even though they shouldn't be able to stand each other. And when you think about it, or at least when I think about it, I've always thought that supervillains, they're just as likely to go fight it out amongst each other as they are to fight it out amongst superheroes and again that's exactly what we're seeing in this story that the joker and carnage are initially drawn to one another and it just does not last very long and i gotta tell you i mean i try not to be too much of a i don't know of a i don't want to say kiss ass but i guess maybe a uh, of a fanboy of any writer but it it, it it's not lost on me that jmd mateus he chose these villains to tell this story for a specific reason and he knew that ultimately they were going to be sort of at loggerheads with each other. And I think the reason that that has always worked for me, that type of thing has always worked for me, is that I remember in the Dick Tracy movie, which I saw when I was very young, the villains were not necessarily on the same page with one another. And there were instances of plenty where there was real conflict there. And in some cases, that conflict turned very fucking deadly. Yeah, quickly. And, and that... And it just felt like so logical and it rang so true. And ever since then, and maybe that's another reason why these intercompany crossovers generally don't work for me is that usually, you know, the heroes have conflict with one another and they're not on the same page. They don't like each other. They don't, they don't get along well. And the, the villains though, somehow it's like they become, you know, these, these mass murderers and world beaters, somehow they become the fucking get along gang. And they can, you know, they they can uh, work together, even even sp- stand to share oxygen with one another. When, by all rights, they should, you know, they they should ventilate each other the minute they walk through the door. And so, anyway, leave it to uh, De Mateus to um, to to catch that. Well, to that end, he also avoided the heroes meet, the heroes fight because of misunderstanding, and then team up trope. I mean, he they these two characters were like, I don't want to work with you. Well, Batman was, but that's Batman. But he didn't throw a punch at Daredevil, or pardon me, throw a punch at Spider-Man like he did in Daredevil. There was no pissing match. Batman's like, I want to work alone. And then later he's like, I could probably use that help. That could be a good tool. Well, right. And that and that's actually something else. Would you have wanted to see, like, you know, just, just for fun and games, uh, Batman and, and Spider-Man, would, would you want to see them swing? I mean, even if it's just kind of fanboy wankery? No, that's the weird thing is I'm I'm glad that that was avoided because there's no it's kind of like Batman versus Superman even though it's thrown up against the wall quite a bit there's no contest there. If Spider-Man landed one punch on Batman's head, Kevlar or not, Batman's going to need either dental work or a full reconstructive surgery. Mhm. And not to mention potential brain damage. So, no, that 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 kind of fight Dave Mateus was wise to avoid it because these two are not suited to that. Visually there wouldn't be much to it. And just from that fanboy wankery perspective, there's just nothing there to keep me that would keep me interested in that kind of fight. Yeah, and yeah, I, I suppose so. But I just part of me thinks it would be kind of funny to see Spider-Man web Batman's uh, foot uh, to a roof somewhere and say, "Okay, uh, let's see you get out of this one." <laughs> okay, I will see that, but it would be it would be thankfully very brief. I hope. Yeah. Well, the um, now there is actually another. I don't know another volume. I mean, I'm not sure. Basically, usually whenever DC uh, or any of these companies would would publish these crossovers, they would be 
usually two issues, unrelated to one another, but Marvel would pun uh, publish one, DC would publish the other. And certainly that was the case here where uh, – and again, it was J.M. DeMatteis who wrote it, but it was uh, Graham Nolan who drew it, uh, the DC published. And basically this is DC's Spider-Man now. And I don't know. I mean it's like reading this now and knowing that it was J.M. DeMatteis who wrote the other one, I'm actually kind of interested now to read that. Now, did you ever get around to reading that or – No, I actually had looked it up while we were talking about it. And the premise sounds interesting because Vanessa Fisk is is dying, and so Fisk is seeking out Ra's al Ghul to to bring her up to a Lazarus pit. And I'm like, that's that's a pretty good fucking concept. Yeah. So I may um, track that down at some point because okay. if it turns out half as good as this one, I'll be a happy camper. Right. I'm just working my way through all my notes here, just trying to see if there's really anything else that I had to cover. Now, do you have any parting shots or anything like that that you wanted to uh, bring up? No, I mean, I pretty much said it. Overall, it was it's not it's not quite Batman Captain America, but it stands out. It's a worthy read. It's worth tracking down. I agree. All right. Well, then um, that's basically it for this. Now we talked about it a little bit at the uh, at the top of the episode. Uh, you know, you do have that uh, that a uh, Daredevil the Daredevil show, mm -hmm. and uh, honestly, kudos. I'm really glad that it's back, and especially now that you know by the time this episode comes out, you'll uh, you'll probably have what do you think? Like uh, you'll probably have at least one extra episode under your belt. Uh, let's see. This is coming. Yeah, I think we'll have two or three. Because right now, as, as we record this, the, the Electra death episode is about to go live. Right. And kind of I a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And that was actually something that I wanted to sort of ask you about in general. Um, whenever you first started uh, the podcast, uh, what I – and obviously I ended up being way wrong on this. But you know, basically, uh, you know, based on the first episode – I thought that you were going to do sort of an index type of show, you know, because you started with Daredevil number one, and I thought, well, okay, that's, you know, he's going to be doing an index show. I'm, I'll have bells on. I can't wait to see where this goes. And obviously, that's not the direction that that, that you've gone in. And honestly, if you look at Daredevil, probably in the late '60s, that's maybe a good thing. But you know, nevertheless, you did kind of throw me a curve. But what I had kind of come to expect was that you weren't going to have too much. Uh, consecutive stuff going on where you're going to have sort of issue after issue and it looks like you're actually going through the Frank Miller run you know sort of bit by bit and now obviously you're going to get to I think maybe the most famous issue that mm -hmm. he ever did and so um, you know really really can't wait to check all that out but I guess what is it about Daredevil that that uh, you're I guess into like what is it that uh, I, I don't think there are a whole lot of Daredevil podcasts out there but what is it about Daredevil that just strikes your 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 fanboy fancy it's the fact that at once he's a simple straightforward character and then on the other hand completely complex because essentially what i love is he's got a simple costume he's got a simple billy club weapon it's basically a blind man against the world a blind man with a stick fighting the world but then you have matt murdoch and the more and i was always i'm always scared to run out of stuff to talk about but it has not hit me yet because it just keeps generating the more I get to know Matt Murdock, I love him a little bit more. And then I find out that, well, he's flawed. He's kind of an asshole at times. Mm -hmm. You know, revealing his identity to Karen is right after her father's funeral. After pretending he had died. That's dickery. I don't care how you paint it. It's dickery. <laughs> yes, it is. But he's a very compassionate, very capable person who has turned a handicap into, into a superpower. And there's... There's no downside to him. I mean, yeah, he's had lame runs, lame eras, but he keeps coming back. Not just as a character, but as – I mean in a story, I mean, but as, as a concept that writers keep flocking to him and they don't reinvent it. They just bring back what's great about him. And that's Blind Man with a Stick fighting the world of evil, I guess. <laughs> Bad guys. Well, and I think there's there's an element of of Daredevil that's actually very it's it's very much on topic of what we've been talking about, which is to say Batman and Spider Man, mm -hmm. and that when you really analyze, and I forget who pointed this out, but when you really analyze 
Daredevil's origin story, what you realize is this is not a superhero's origin story. This is a supervillain's origin story. And the fact that Daredevil's on the side of the law that he is really says something about who he is as a character because, you know, I think if, if, we, if we look at things from a strictly rational point of view, realistic, the end goal of somebody who goes through what Bruce Wayne went through as a kid is not going to be to turn into a superhero someday. It's going to be basically to become a a male Paris Hilton. You know, he's going to be JFK Jr. Yeah, that's who. That's where that guy's going. Somebody goes through what Peter does. I don't like in a, in a strictly practical sense. I don't know how much that would really slow somebody down. You know, would he really change his ways after that? Well, I'd hope so, but. You know, because he's now got one hell of an incentive to do so, but I don't see that as an absolute. He may decide to keep chasing after fortune and glory. But I think most people in Matt Murdock's situation, we all probably would have chosen the other way. And he decided to become a hero. That is very powerful. He's a guy that's, that's been shit on most of his life. His mom ditched him to become a nun. His dad is a washed up prize fighter he's not a perfect parent by any stretch but you know he gets killed when trying to prove a point to his son not to mention he got blinded in in an accident trying to do a good deed everything he does ends up bouncing back at him so yeah the fact that he's as noble as he is is a fucking miracle (laughs) I agree and uh, you podcast about him all the time and where is it I've already forgotten uh huh where is it that people can find that show, sir? Uh, www.daredevilpodcast.com, as well as iTunes, uh, RSS feeds. And uh, so, as you mentioned, I, I've been going through the Frank Miller run, just wrapping things up for a bit. Um, I'm going to hit that Electra issue, and then there's going to be a break in that. And then for a while, I'm going basically back to the classic, because I felt like I kind of shortchanged it. So, yeah, it's not an index show. I do things, I don't want to say willy-nilly, but I go where my news takes me. And, and at that time, when I came back, I'm like, I don't want to stick with this. I kind of want to do some some older stuff and get some more mileage out of that. Well, I agree. And anything that diversifies people's interest in Daredevil beyond Frank Miller is fine by me. Yep. So nothing against Frank Miller, but there's more to Daredevil than just that. So, yep. uh, right. Well, I think that's basically it for me. So um, all of you come back next week for another episode of the Big Book Report as Chris Honeywell and I are going to talk about the Big Book of Little Criminals. That's pretty much it for me. So, bye, everybody. I'll see you next week. We are out. the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? drawings saying what the future is going to be. 
I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. It was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners and the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at Relatively Geeky Podcast blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message if any you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener it's that easy and there's no minimum donation be a show sponsor today if you shop at amazon.com please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there if you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? 
If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.